Welcome to the very first episode of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. This will be a weekly podcast focusing on music, entertainment, and sports. We will be discussing important recent cases and legal issues from those areas and our opinion on how those issues should and will play out. I will also have guests each week from the entertainment and music fields who can offer their opinions and perspective on entertainment-related issues. A little bit about me. I am a partner in the law firm of King & Blue, where I head up the entertainment and intellectual property section of my law firm. We have offices in Nashville, Tennessee, and Los Angeles, California. We have litigated and won many of the most important music-related cases over the last 20 years. I began my career in the entertainment field basically suing the entire rap music industry for the allegedly unlawful sampling of my client's music in more than 480 rap songs. We won each of the cases we tried and helped to establish the law on the standard for copyright infringement in the music sampling area. When iTunes launched, I represented Eminem's former production company in what amounted to a landmark case that established that the agreements between record labels and iTunes were license agreements and not sale agreements, and that artists were, in many cases, entitled to 50% of what the record labels received from Apple as a royalty instead of the much lower royalty rates they were being paid. That victory spawned many similar lawsuits and class actions against the record labels. I've also represented songwriters and music publishers against Spotify for the alleged infringement of thousands of their songs by Spotify, and am currently representing 8 Mile Style, which owns and administers hundreds of Eminem songs in a similar lawsuit. And of course, we represented Marvin Gaye's family in the famous Blurred Lines copyright infringement case against Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke, a case where the jury returned a $7 million verdict and in which the Gay family was awarded a 50% running royalty on future sales of Blurred Lines. That decision was and is highly controversial, and we'll be discussing how that case and many other similar cases affect music, the creation of music, and what is fair or not fair in this field. In fact, each day there seems to be very interesting cases in the news involving sports, music, and entertainment generally, and my guests and I will be exploring those cases and offering our perspective on them. Now, I know that this podcast is being launched at a very difficult time for us all. We are isolated, many of us, from friends, family, and colleagues. The future seems uncertain, but we will get through this. I know that, and we will help each other do so. I hope that this weekly podcast will provide a much-needed distraction for us all. Be enjoyable, put a smile on your face, and hopefully, maybe even make you laugh. That is really my hope. I want this to be a learning experience for us all, me learning from you and you hopefully learning from me and my guests. This will be no holds barred. All opinions are welcome, even if those opinions disagree with mine. I hope after each episode, you will look forward to the next. So with that, in the words of the late, great Jackie Gleason, away we go. Today is March 31, 2020, and I think we can all agree that March has completely and thoroughly sucked, but I do believe April will be better, and May will be better after that. I am no philosopher, but I heard earlier today someone say that hope is 
when you can envision the light at the end of the tunnel before you can actually see it. I have always been a glass half full kind of person and I really like that because while today seems dark and the news is not great, tomorrow will be better and the day after that will be better than that and before long we will be past that. So I want to just give all my thoughts and prayers out to all of you who are listening to this podcast and especially those in New York City who are going through a very, very difficult time right now. I grew up in uh, Miami, Florida in the late 70s and 80s, and uh, I grew up in part of Miami called Carroll City. And if uh, any of you are familiar with Miami and particularly Carroll City, you know that that was a pretty tough place to grow up. It has prepared me for a lot in life, tough times and um, being tough in the face of adversity, and also always wanting to be on the side of the underdog because I myself have always been an underdog. And that's the side that I like to be on in my cases, and um, those are the people that I most associate with. My dad uh, drove a taxi in Miami. He died when I was 10, and my mom and I were pretty much stuck in Miami, in Carroll City, in this neighborhood, and it just taught me everything you might want to learn about life and how to survive when things are tough. And I know that uh, the saying, it's darkest before the dawn, is true. And um, we will get through everything that's going on right now. This is a podcast that is primarily about music and law and entertainment because that is my profession. I'm going to have, as I mentioned, great guests on who will give their perspective on all things entertainment, music, and the law. I was debating in my own mind, thinking about how I would start my first podcast, and I decided I would start it by telling you how I got into um, the entertainment law field. It's a story that I like to tell people because I think it's inspiring to young lawyers and um, those in law school because you just never know where life is going to take you. I joined my law firm, the same law firm I'm still with in the early 1990s, and soon after um, we had a situation in New York where we represented the Tribune Company that owned the New York Daily News or had owned the New York Daily News. And they um, sold the Daily News after a um, massive strike, a labor dispute. And shortly after they sold the newspaper, there began a large number, hundreds, maybe more than a thousand workers' compensation claims that were filed um, by employees at the New York Daily News, alleging that they had lost their hearing as a result of uh, being in the uh, noisy uh, newspaper and that um, the uh, former owner of the New York Daily News was responsible. And the uh, Tribune Company at the time was self-insured and they were paying out uh, large amounts of money and they called us up and asked us to investigate and I was 26 years old then and I went up there for what was supposed to be about a week and I investigated the um, situation and I decided that in my opinion 
the claims were fraudulent, and we ended up filing a 600-defendant racketeering case on uh, my recommendation against everyone, against unions and um, the employees, just about everyone who we alleged were involved. And um, one week turned into five years, believe it or not, and I spent four of those years taking two depositions every day of the uh, various defendants. I like to say that I either took uh, four or 500 depositions or I took the same deposition four or 500 times. And um, quite frankly, there were days I thought that if I had to ask the same question again, I would literally throw myself out the window. Um, after being there for five years, we uh, resolved things. And um, on my very last day in New York, I was waiting for a taxi outside of my building, and it was snowing, and no taxis were coming, and there was a gentleman standing next to me, and um, he had been waiting as well. I was first, but um, being the gentleman that I um, try to be, I offered that we share a taxi. I asked him where he was going. We were going in the same direction, and I said, how about the next taxi that comes? We just share it so we don't have to fight over the taxi, and um, he said, sure. Um, he asked me when we got in the taxi what I was doing in New York, and I told him the story in just about the same length of time I just told all of you the story. And I told him that we had settled this case, and I was going back to Nashville. And he said, oh, my wife is in the music business. Um, next time we go to Nashville, if you give me your card, I'll give you a call. Maybe we can um, have dinner. So I said, sure. I never carried a card with me, but that particular day, I had one card on me that I found in my pocket. I gave it to him. Out of the taxi, I went. And back to Nashville, I went, never expecting to see or hear from him again. Well, now I'm back in Nashville, and I was sitting in my office thinking, why did I come back to Nashville? Because I spent five years in New York with all this experience prosecuting this case, but I had no clients because I was just had that one case for five years. And I was thinking, what am I going to do with the rest of my life and my career? And um, a few months later, the phone rings. Hey, remember me? We shared a taxi cab in New York. Uh, my wife and I are in Nashville. Would you like to have dinner? Sure, I said. So we go to dinner and he tells me and she tells me that she is the copyright administrator for a company out of Detroit that owns the funk music of George Clinton, Parliament of Funkadelic, the Ohio Players, and that they had identified about 500 songs they believed unlawfully sampled their uh, music, and they were about ready to start preparing a lawsuit to file against basically the entire rap music industry. And she said, you know, Nashville seems like a less costly place to file something like this. And all the major record labels and music publishers are located in Nashville. They have offices in Nashville and it's cheaper than New York or Los Angeles. And, you know, the, the owner of Bridgeport Music and Westbound Records, he has lawyers, but, you know, maybe if you go to um, Detroit and meet him, um, you know, who knows? And I said, I don't know anything about music law. I don't know about copyright law. She said, oh, you handled this big case in New York. You can learn it. So off to Detroit I went, and I met 
um, the owner of the company and he liked me and he hired me. And seven or eight months later, we launched what is now world famous uh, or infamous, infamous, I should say, depending on your perspective, uh, copyright infringement litigation against the entire rap music industry. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we won each of the cases that we tried and we made law that I'll be talking about in future podcasts that is uh, taught in every law school in the country today. You cannot take a class on um, music law or copyright law without learning about uh, the cases that I litigated over the four or five years that that litigation went on. And then, um, to put a cherry on top of it, as I mentioned also in the introduction, when um, iTunes launched, the guys that discovered Eminem, they grew up at the studio of the owner of Bridgeport and Westbound, and I got to know them through that litigation. Um, you'll be meeting or hearing from one of them in a future podcast. And so the uh, owner of Bridgeport and Westbound recommended to them that they talk to me and said that um, I'd be perfect to handle that case for them. And we ended up filing that um, digital download royalty case that I mentioned in the introduction, which we won. Um, but it just goes to show everyone out there that one decision can make all the difference in your life. If I did not offer to share a taxi cab with a stranger on a snowy day on my last day in New York, the last 20 years of my life would never have happened. So for those of you who don't know about uh, the Blurred Lines case, and I know many of you who are tuning in probably do, but for those who don't, um, let me tell you a little bit about it and why it has been controversial. Because as I mentioned, the focus of this podcast is going to be music-related cases, issues, entertainment-related issues and cases, uh, as well as sports and anything that we all find interesting and want to talk about. But since I did title it Blurred Lines in Life, I thought we should begin by talking about the Blurred Lines case because that in many ways started this controversial era of copyright infringement cases that have been both praised and criticized depending on which aisle you're on. And we're going to be discussing it. My guests will be discussing it. And my guests will be discussing cases that have grown out of uh, the Blurred Lines litigation. So I thought that perhaps giving a bit of background and beginning to discuss it on this first podcast would be a good way to, to begin. Marvin Gaye wrote and recorded Got to Give It Up in his studio in 1977. Um, he did not write out any sheet music. He just wrote it as it came to his mind and recorded it. Um, did not write out any notation. It was created in the studio as modern music is created. And um, it became obviously a legendary hit, uh, one of the most iconic dance and R&B songs of all time. In 2013, Robin Thicke and Pharrell record Blurred Lines. And um, I believe the single Blurred Lines is released in May. And as part of 
the marketing of Blurred Lines. Uh, Robin Thicke gives interviews, and he says on numerous occasions that um, he told Pharrell Williams to create a song uh, like Got to Give It Up. He uses different language in different interviews, but um, essentially that's what um, he says in those interviews. In one interview, um, one of the um, people who are interviewing Robin say to him that it sounds like Got to Give It Up Part 2, and um, Robin Thicke agrees. Uh, Jan Gay, Marvin's former wife and mother of Nona and Frankie Gay, who um, own the uh, rights to the musical composition, got to give it up from their father. Hear Blurred Lines and immediately um, think that it is a copy of Got to Give It Up, and initially thought that it must have been licensed because it was so close to uh, Got to Give It Up, um, but later learns that it was not licensed and begins discussions with the Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke camp to um, negotiate some type of resolution, some type of license fee, uh, something to compensate them for what they believe to be the use of Got to Give It Up. At some point, uh, Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke decide that rather than negotiate a resolution of the matter, they'd be better off just suing the gay family, which they do. Um, They file a lawsuit in federal court for um, what would be called a declaration of non-infringement. They're asking for the court to declare that Blurred Lines does not infringe, got to give it up. Both sides hire musicologists who support one side or the other. Um, Of course, Robin and Pharrell's musicologist say that this was not a copy of the composition uh, got to give it up, where as the uh, musicologist hired by the gay family, Judith Fennell, issues a report um, identifying many similarities and saying that this was a copy of the musical composition, Got to Give It Up. It was the position of Pharrell and Robin Thicke that perhaps there was, that this was, let me say it this way, that this was the copying of a genre, of an era, but not the copying of Got to Give It Up, despite the interviews that Robin gave to um, the media as part of promotion of Blurred Lines. Now, something interesting happened just before the trial of this matter that is having a major impact on copyright law. Just before the trial of this matter, the district judge ruled that under the 1909 Copyright Act, which governs musical compositions written before January 1st, 1978, that the only portion of the musical composition that is allowed to be protected is written notation. And that even though Got to Give It Up was recorded in the studio by Marvin Gaye, it is only um, written notation that was published that would be protected under the 1909 Copyright Act. I'm not going to get into the details about how that's different under the uh, Copyright Act of 1976 that governs compositions written after January 1, 1978, because that would be incredibly boring. But this is specific to the court's analysis of the 1909 Copyright Act. And just for a bit of background, prior to 
1978, the United States Copyright Office um, would not take a recording of the composition as what is called the deposit copy. And just so everyone knows, um, in order to have certain rights with respect to your composition, uh, you have to file a copyright registration with the U.S. Copyright Office. While copyright protection vests in an author currently upon creation or under the 1909 Act upon some form of publication, in order to be able to actually file a lawsuit for copyright infringement and to have the ability to get what are called statutory damages and to be awarded your attorney's fees, you have to have a copyright registration on file with the U.S. Copyright Office. And you have to submit a deposit copy with that copyright registration. Now the Copyright Office accepts the recording of the composition as a deposit copy, but before 1978, they did not. Therefore, when songs were created in the studio, which did not have sheet music, what would happen is the music publisher would hire somebody or get someone to just jot down what's called a lead sheet, which is a sketch of the composition, to submit it to the Copyright Office to serve as a deposit copy. So that's what happened with Got to Give It Up. After Marvin creates Got to Give It Up, someone who knows who and who knows with what education prepares this sketch of the composition, this lead sheet, and submits it with the copy, to the Copyright Office. The court rules just before trial that the elements in the recording that are not in the lead sheet are not protected and could not serve as the basis of the copyright infringement claim. That it was only those elements of the composition in or reflected by the lead sheet that are protectable and it was only those elements that if copy could serve as a copyright infringement claim as the basis of the claim in the Blurred Lines case. So Judith Fennell, who had identified about 15 different elements of Blurred Lines that she says was copied from Got to Give It Up, those 15 elements, only about five or so, were arguably reflected in the lead sheet. So our case went from about 15 elements that were in the lead sheet that um, we had alleged were the basis of our copyright infringement claim down to about five. In addition, just before trial, the court ruled that because the elements of the recording were not necessarily, the elements of the composition in the recording, I should say, were not necessarily in the lead sheet, we could not play Marvin Gaye's Got to Give It Up at trial. And the court reasoned that we could not play the entirety of the song at trial because to do so would be to expose the jury to additional elements of the composition that were not in the lead sheet that could not serve as the basis of our copyright infringement claim, and that would be prejudicial to Pharrell and Robin Thicke. So basically on the eve of trial, our case got cut from 14 or 15 elements of Got to Give It Up that we claim were copied by Blurred Lines down to about five. And 
we were told we could not play Got to Give It Up at trial, the entirety of the song, because to do so would be to expose the jury to these other elements that were not um, reflected by the lead sheet that were not going to be allowed to serve as the basis of our copyright infringement claim. So that was tough. Now, what the judge did allow us to do was to play little excerpts of the part of Got to Give It Up that contained elements that were arguably in the lead sheet and compare those to those same elements in Blurred Lines. But we were not allowed to play the entirety of Marvin Gaye's song. As you know, we still won, and the jury returned a verdict of um, over $7 million in favor of the Gaye family. But the importance of this decision, um, and, and remember, the copyright, this decision was based on the Copyright Act of 1909. We could not find any other case over the course of 106 years of this Copyright Act where a court restricted a copyright infringement claim to a lead sheet. This was the first time a court had made this decision. And the um, importance of this decision cannot be overstated. And this decision has now been followed um, by other courts and by the Ninth Circuit. And um, it's a very important decision and one that I completely disagree with. And I'm not at this point going to talk about legally why, because it's relatively complicated and we'll get into it at some, in some other podcast, but think of it this way. Think about the disenfranchising of songwriters that has now taken place. Marvin Gaye creates got to give it up in the studio. All the composition is what he came up with in his mind. He is the author of the entirety of that musical composition. But according to this decision and according to subsequent decisions, which we will get into, Marvin Gaye is no longer actually the author of Got to Give It Up. Nobody who wrote a song in the studio prior to 1978 is any longer the author of their own composition. Who has become the author of the composition? Some unknown transcriber who was hired simply to get a lead sheet to sketch a part of the composition out and to get that on file with the copyright office. You have completely disenfranchised these composers of their work. Now, a clever infringer who is hell-bent on copying some of the most iconic works of all time simply needs to go down to the copyright office check out the lead sheets on file and any element not found within the lead sheet becomes what public domain can be copied with immunity you are disenfranchising every great motown author of their works and you are disenfranchising in fact every writer and, and think about it this way Many composers are not fluent in um, reading sheet music. They can't write sheet music. Some of the greatest songwriters of all time, you'd be surprised, cannot write or read sheet music. But now they are completely disenfranchised of their work. And we hear a lot, and in the criticism of the Blurred Lines case and the ultimate decision, what I've heard over and over and over again is that you are stifling creativity. If you cannot be inspired by a song and 
copy it, you are inhibiting creativity. Those who have criticized Blurred Lines have focused on uh, the impact on the modern writer and the stress they must be under to always wonder whether they're going to get sued for copying other people's work and, in their view, simply being inspired by other people's work. But I have an answer to that, and that answer is that we are forgetting about some of the greatest songwriters of all time, the writers of the 70s who are now older and who rely on royalties for their work and for what they've created. And so I guess the counter is that to be able to to take that work and not compensate them is unfair. And now it goes even a step further. Uh, Now, by virtue of this ruling, you are saying that the work they've created is not even theirs. That unless some after-the-fact transcriber put it in a written, notated form to submit it to the Copyright Office, that what they created is not theirs, and it's basically public domain. That is unfair, it's not right, and it's not just. And um, by the way, people don't understand, I don't think, or have an appreciation, I guess, for the stakes that are involved in these copyright infringement cases. In a copyright infringement case, while the court does have discretion, the prevailing party, the one who wins, can have the losing party be ordered to pay their attorney's fees. And um, I'll tell you a little story. After the court ruled that our claim was restricted to the lead sheet and we couldn't play Marvin Gaye's song at trial, uh, my opponent called me and he said in substance that with the court ruling that our claim was limited to the elements reflected in the lead sheet and not being able to uh, play, got to give it up at trial, that essentially, um, in his view, I could not win. And he said, and I'll never forget these exact words, he said that um, a lawyer needs to know when to extricate himself from a case. And he said that he has, or his clients have, you know, several million dollars in attorney's fees in the case, and that he believes that if we go forward now and try this case, that we'll not only lose, but that the judge would be inclined to award them their attorney's fees, and um, that that would be financially devastating on the gay family, which I knew to be true because they are very modest people who rely on um, Marvin's royalties to live and survive, and that would be financially devastating to them. But he said essentially that if we gave up and uh, settled and walked away, that they would not seek their attorney's fees. And I don't blame him for taking that tact. I might do the same thing myself if I was in his shoes. So I immediately called Jan Gay, and I gave her the bad news about my conversation. And I, you know, told her that what we are being told is, you know, not an unlikely scenario. And um, 
asked her what she wanted to do. And to Jan's incredible strength, I don't know what other word to call it, it's beyond me, the courage that she had and that the kids had. But um, she said she needed to speak to um, Nona and that um, they would call me back. And a few minutes later, they called me back and they said that they spoke about it and they're not giving up. I believe the exact words she said were that uh, she believes in me, Richard, that I can win this case, that we can win this case, and that they owe it to Marvin to see this through, no matter the odds, no matter the obstacles, no matter the cards that we had now been dealt. As you might imagine, that was a very emotional um, conversation. And she said, we're going to win, Richard. You're going to win this. I hung up the phone, and you can imagine what was going through my mind. I went up to my room at the Doubletree Hotel. I literally turned off the lights, and I decided that I was um, not going to come out until I figured out not only how we could win, but how we would win. And um, thank goodness we did. All right, I now have um, with me Martin Harrington, a very good friend and accomplished songwriter who has written uh, or produced for, among others, Celine Dion, uh, Stevie Wonder, Westlife, Thalia, Kylie Minogue, and many, many others. How are you doing, Martin? I'm very good. How are you? Doing great. So welcome to my podcast, by the way. Are you excited to be here? Thank you. Well, i I want to know if you're excited to be here, though. That's very important. I'm excited. It's, uh, I think it's a great thing that you're doing a podcast. And uh, I think a lot of people will, will, will gain a lot of information they wouldn't normally glean from, from someone like you in the entertainment industry. He's normally a kind of an out-of-reach person, if you know what I mean. Now, from your accent, it sounds to me like um, you are from a foreign country. Is that right? Yeah, Texas. <laughs> Where I'm from, uh, I'm from just outside of London, in the countryside of Kent in England, originally. Amazing. Now you and I met because you wrote um, a song called "Amazing," um, that was then licensed to Matt Cardle, who won the X Factor in the UK, and uh, released a song called "Amazing 2. And uh, you heard what you believe to be your chorus from Amazing that was licensed uh, and used by Matt Cardle in his song Amazing in the Ed Sheeran song Photograph. And um, I ended up representing you in a copyright infringement case against uh, Ed Sheeran and Johnny McDade for that song Photograph. Is that right? Is that right? Is that what we did? That's, uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And um, we can't talk about what happened as a result of that case, but you did end up um, being identified as a writer. So you have your own view of, of these copyright infringement cases. You have experience with them through 
through your own um, experience with respect to uh, amazing and photographs. So I, I've been talking earlier before you joined me about um, the creation of music and about the dispute, I guess, or the criticism of the Blurred Lines case and about how it impacts songwriters. So as a, as a modern songwriter, someone who's, who's writing songs today, do you listen to other songs when you create music? Are you inspired by other music? What is your process in writing songs? Well, I can tell you this. I think we, we've probably discussed this privately before, but I can remember, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to write songs for, it's about 20 years, so I'm getting old, but in the last 20 years, you know, hundreds of writing sessions, hundreds of songs, most of them never even come out, most of them never get heard, but you still, you still create and you still write and you still make music because that's what you like doing and that's what you're not born to do, but that's what you're, that's the sort of, the tools you've been given and that's what you do for, you know, your day job. So I can definitely remember on top of my head, a handful of situations, I want to say three or four, in the last 20 years where I'm in a writing session, there's one specific one, I won't name the writer, but of really successful writers who's had countless number one hits for years all around the world. And I remember in that one particular session, we were writing this song, we were in London, it was feeling great, and and he had a real uh, issue. He said, look, I think I'm on top of something. I said, all right, well, let's change it. And literally what we did was we stopped writing the song. That was the end of it. Back then we were using dictaphones to record, so it wasn't like an iPad or a, you know, a modern device to sort of record your ideas. It was just a tape dictaphone. So what would happen is that idea got put in the trash. That tape dictaphone's probably in a black sack somewhere in my garage. And we never even worked on it ever again. And that's kind of my personal opinion is that I always presumed that if you were in a writing session and you were writing a song and you felt anywhere near to something else previous, you just move on and start something else, which for me is the whole reason why I was really not just surprised, but taken aback by the current sort of last few years where there are so many cases of obvious infringement, but people don't at first take any ownership. They just kind of deny it, which I think is, I think it's sad actually. And it's most writers I know have got the, the integrity and the honesty to sort of, like I said, move on and, and move to another song. You know, that's um, interesting. One thing that I would like your opinion on is, do you think that worrying about copying other music, does that in your mind promote the creation of original music or does it inhibit the creation of original music? Because one of the criticisms of Blurred Lines is that songwriters, if they're always worried about coming close to something, that that will somehow inhibit the you know creation of new music. Do you? What's, what's your view on that? No, I, I think it's bullshit. I really do. I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm meant to, to swear on your podcast, so we can we can change that. <laughs> That's, <okay. laughs> That's right. I, I think. Look, I was thinking before I came on here that. You know, for example, a good lawyer like yourself has spent years studying the law. You know, a medical practitioner knows as much as they need to know about their area of 
the medical profession they're in. And I feel equally that a songwriter, if that's what you do and that's what you're known for doing or that's what, you know, you're trying to accomplish is to write successful songs that the world can hear, I think you have a duty to have a, a real broad lengthy understanding of music that means music that came way before your time and you should have a collection of music you should be listening and consuming music so that it's just by default in your brain if you're similar to something that you you'd already be able to pick it out and I'm I'm pretty good at that just because I've always grown up listening to lots of music since I was really young and I think now there's a laziness that's kicked in right so producers or songwriters seem to be not bothered by the fact that they're on top of something else and they'd rather just deal with it later than at the time, like I said previously, just move on. So if people are saying now that, you know, copyright lawsuits like Blurred Lines are going to kind of screw up a songwriter's work process, I think that's absolute horseshit. I really do because... Let's be honest, there are, you know, lots of, there's, there's millions of songs out there and part of our skill set is to be able to create something new that's never been heard before. So a singer can sing a great song, so it's a whole new experience. And I think, I think it's a big excuse. I think a lot of the, the sort of hip-hop uh, artists before us that have sampled and cleared songs maybe paved the way for modern songwriters thinking it's okay just to, to take what they want. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think you're right. And I have to like say that I think that in fact, the Blurred Lines case, at least in my view, has helped. You know, after Blurred Lines, it was in the news that, um, you know, Tom Petty thought that Sam Smith had, had uh, copied um, one of his songs in one of Sam's songs. And... Sam Smith listened to it and said, you know what? It is pretty damn close. And they worked something out. And maybe if not for Blurred Lines, that wouldn't have happened. And, you know, I think there was an issue with the song Uptown Funk where um, Mark Ronson, he he recognized that there was something that was very close. And uh, perhaps maybe even subconsciously, they copied those tracks and, and they worked something out, which I think, I think Blurred Lines helped in that regard because... Um, it incentivized them to work it out and, and recognize that that they did, you know, copy. And I, and I think one other thing, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this and see if you agree. And I've said this before, you know, when you paint and, you know, there's only so many ways you can paint a tomato. But with a musical composition, there are literally millions, an infinite number of creative choices to make. And so you don't have to rely on copying someone else's music when you literally have an infinite number of creative choices to make when creating music. So like, for example, in, in your case um, that you brought against um, Sharon and McDade on Photograph, I believe the allegation was that there were like 38 identical notes in the chorus, both in pitch, duration, you know, everything like just blatant. Was, I think uh, it was th- 39, actually. 39. We were, uh, yeah. So me and, my, me and my co-writer talk about that randomly, about the 39 notes, which is in itself was, was pretty shocking. Yep. So, um, well, listen, I really appreciate your thoughts on this. I want to turn as a songwriter now to, to something else. I want to have a little bit of fun with you before I let you go. Sure. And um, we've had this conversation before over dinner, and uh, 
not exactly this, but I want to ask you who, I want to play a game with you called Who is Better. Are you ready? You like to play this game with I me. I do anyway. like to play this game with you. You're right. And you, always seem, you always seem to win. but I don't know that I win because I don't think there is a winner or a loser, but I'm going to throw some things out. And I think, uh, uh, so I'm going to, this, this game is called Who is Better? And um, we'll start with this. The combination of Elton John and Bernie Topin or Queen, who are the better songwriters? Elton John and Bernie Topin. You told me Queen. In a prior conversation, you no, said Queen. I don't think I did. I think I said if Queen, if Freddie Mercury had been still alive today and they'd carried on making music, I would probably say Queen. Mm. But because Elton John's still, you know, putting out music and those two just seem to never get it wrong. Exactly. I now, I said El Elton and El Bernie. Joe. I'm going to dispute you um, on this podcast that's going all around the world. And I'm going okay. to say that you originally said Queen. And now you're backtracking because I said Elton and Bernie. And now you just well, want to I'm, be I'm like a me. Big, I'm a huge Queen fan. Don't get me wrong. However, you have to go over someone's entire work span. I think obviously Elton's is so large. That okay. Then let's go there. Okay. Then let's, let's move on. So we're going to kick Queen out and we're going to go to Elton and Bernie or Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Paul McCartney and John Lennon. I didn't even need to think about that one. Not even close? Not even close. Okay. I and think if you ask Elton John that same question, he'd probably say the same answer as me. Is there anyone in your mind on top of Paul McCartney and John Lennon? Oh, that's a, that's a horrible question. I mean, as, as a partnership, probably not. And they probably never will be. You know, two people that just sit in a room together and knock out songs. I don't think anyone, anyone will ever come close to their brilliance. But there may be individual people, but as a, as a duo, no. I don't, I don't think anyone will ever write that quantity of hits and songs that you, you keep coming back to. Okay. And last question in this, um, and I'm asking it partly because of your personal experience, but putting aside um, your case, where does someone who's written so many recent hits like Ed Sheeran rank among some of these great songwriters that we have been talking about? Someone else actually asked me that question. And I can't remember who it was, but within the last year or two, obviously asked me that, that exact question of where I thought he'd end up in his career. And I think he will, look, I've got nothing against him. I think he will end up as a really, really history book, you know, Hall of Fame songwriter, because if he continues at this rate that he's on right now, which is putting out, you know, every year for him or for other people, he writes hit songs. I think he'll end up as one of the greats. And I, I hope he does. I, I really do. All right, Martin. Well, thank you. And let me ask you just on a personal note, how are you getting along in these coronavirus days? I'm, I'm great. Uh, my kids are all great. So there's no, uh, there's no problem there. Someone said to me recently that songwriters and producers are obviously in quarantine anyway, because they're stuck in studios with no windows and, you know, no daylight for hours at a time. So 
it's kind of something you get used to, to being hunkered down and away from the outside world. But yeah, it's it's very strange. And uh, it must be hard for sort of bands that were out there meant to be touring this year and people putting music out because obviously everything's grounded to a halt. So I just hope it gets back to normal pretty soon. Well, it will. We're going to kick its ass and we'll be back to uh, our regular lives very, very soon. And uh, I want to thank you for being my first guest on the first ever podcast of Blurred Laws and Life with Richard Bush. Let me ask you before I let you go, was Blurred Lines rightly decided? Was it copyright infringement? I believe it was. I do. My man. uh, No, I I think uh, you may have asked me that when we first met about, you know, had I seen it or had I heard about it, but... You know, you can't, it's very hard for me to listen to Marvin Gaye and for someone to tell me that that song is not a Marvin Gaye song. I mean, it's just, it was weird how it all played out and people jumped on that bandwagon of, you know, the anti-establishment, whatever you want to call it. But that was just a no-brainer. And I think it was rightly decided. And I think, yeah, good for you for, for standing up for people like the Gaye family. Well, don't get me started on on the criticism because that that's another show and that can get me going for another hour or two. But, you know, the powers that be in the music industry and, you know, my view is they have a vested interest in knocking things like this down because, you know, they want these current artists to go do what they want and make hit records, whether they copy someone's work or not. Um, they want to make money and um, they don't really care about protecting the Marvin Gaye's and their families and their heirs and you know these great songwriters what you said earlier richard about the sam smith situation that's how it should be i mean that's exactly how it should play out like if you've honestly made a mistake he held his hand up said i'm really sorry my bad you know the petty estate got the co-write or the part of the song and, and sam smith moved on i mean isn't that how it's meant to be surely well, thank you, bro. I really appreciate it. I love you. Thanks for being on the, the podcast. And it's a pleasure. Uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back on sometime and we'll have a lot of things to talk about. So thank you again for being on the first ever podcast of Blurred Laws and Life with Richard Bush. And um, I'll see you soon, Martin. And goodbye to everyone out there and see you next week.